the kingship of Jesus is so, so necessary? What is the answer to the political situations in the earth right now, to the cultural confusion, to a church that is so divided? It is the kingship of Jesus Christ. Morning, good morning, good morning. I'm so happy this morning. I'm really excited. Welcome to another podcast on the book of Isaiah. I'm so honored to be here. I remain your privileged co-host, Miss Manmark Bongtao. Glad and very honored to have our host, Mr. Isaac Muema. Hi. Good morning. How are you this morning? Every I'm, other good. I'm good, I'm good. Okay. Thank you so much. You okay? Yes, I'm good. How okay. are you? I'm fine. Ready for us to dive into God's Word this morning mm-hmm. and hopefully unpack themes and and uh, episodes that God has mm-hmm. for, for us to learn from okay. and hopefully have the applications in modern day life from the historical background again. Okay. Yeah, so pretty exciting stuff coming up. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. That's really amazing. I'm glad. I'm really excited this morning. And uh, I'd just like to ask a few questions before we get into the... Before we dive into the word, right? Um, okay. Yes. So, Mr. Isaac, we want to know, how has the first 17 days of 2021 been for you? You know, um, I feel like um, we've, we've seen this over and over and over again. We've not lived for such a long time on the earth. Mm-hmm. But for the very short time we've lived on the earth, I feel like I've seen this over and over again where people at the beginning of the year start saying, this is my resolution for the year, <laughs> this and this and this. And you know, the first 10 days, the first five days, we are, you know, up and about, so committed to those resolutions. Yes. And by the time we get to day 25, uh, we're starting to give excuses on how my schedule became tight. Oh my God, workload is so much, or something, 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 something. And by the time we're in July, we're feeling like, I had a resolution in January and this is July and I have not even done like half of those resolutions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you start to even feel regret. Why did I even say I'm going to do these resolutions and I cannot even do them? So I'll just like to know how your first 17 days has been. Did you have any resolutions for the year 2021? And if you did, how has it been? Have you been following through? Have you been committed to your word? Um, yeah, how just in general, how has the first seventeen days Okay. So first of all, I don't do resolutions. Okay. I gave up on those. <laughs> I gave up on those uh, a long time ago because honestly, uh, none of them was being fulfilled at any time of the year. Very few, quite a few. Uh, 
So I didn't I I I start the year with with less expectations, with less resolutions, but with with more prayers and seeking God. So that is how my first seventeen days have been. Extensive moments of deliberating on God's word and just yeah giving god that open space to direct me this year so whatever god will will drop in my heart especially around this the end of the year up to the first few months mm-hmm. they're pretty much important to carry me through the year so that's what i hang on so more than my res- resolutions that i can make i i lean towards that so um, it, it has been actually the first few few weeks of January have been eventful for me. Yeah, quite quite a number of milestones that I've made in my personal life, in my in my business, in my individual life, and yeah, in my in my personal walk with the Lord. Um, the major highlight just being my birthday. Uh, that was on January fifteenth at a, an incredible time of course uh with my fiance who is the co-host and yeah it's just a good moment moments to have people from all around the world sending their regards their greetings um and yeah and and as an individual you do need that uh, as a minister you you learn not to lean on people's approval or or anything of, of that sort, but um, there's, there's that place in the body of Christ where we celebrate each other and we love one another, and such days are just crucial mm-hmm. to know that, uh, yeah, there are people who have your back, who pray for you, who love you, and yeah, it was pretty amazing and exciting to receive messages from friends, family, yeah, that, that has been my major highlight, but mostly it has been just dwelling on on God's word and yeah the major milestones that I've made in my in my life personally yeah oh that's very interesting mm. yeah. very very interesting to hear so yeah I'm, I'm glad to hear that this morning um um a bit of topic right um I was, I was I was actually going through something and you know I've realized that even in the body of Christ we have like domestic violence going on and like a lot of people think that it's, it's just the women who are attacked domestically. We forget that even the men go through domestic violence and many people have lost their lives to this. Right, to this cause. Right? Okay, so I was just wondering how these people can be helped in the body of Christ. Um, so many of them have gone through counseling, but it's still on the rise if you look at it, right? So I was just wondering like, how best way, how is the best way that these people can be helped? Okay. I actually concur with that. Domestic violence is on the rise. I did a surprisingly enough i did a it's like a survey 
on social media a few months ago last year uh-huh. and it was based on on a post where i gave different statistics of domestic violence just here in kenya there have been a lot of reports about it happening so let me just put some figures onto that so that we can understand each other and so that uh, people can get the weight of what is going on so this was by july last year mm-hmm. and we had a, doc- a documentary in one of the tv channels in kenya where fathers and caregivers in busia were taking advantage of their children or beneficiaries mm-hmm. with more than 13000 cases reported mm-hmm. by that time you know these were people who were defiling minors mostly their own, their own daughters and even some defiling their sons and uh many were being infected by HIV you know by their own biological fathers and then surprisingly enough the people who committed those crimes they end up running to Uganda uh you know by escaping arbitrary means and 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 police arrest and their files just miss uh, their files get lost mysteriously and they can't be found be found they can't be traced so it's it's really frustrating to follow up on the cases and also by the same month there were reports of there was a government report revealing that more than 3000 it's actually close to 4000 it's 3964 teenagers were reported pregnant in Kenya since January so just in a period of 6 months there were all those amounts of pregnancies maybe you can argue that doesn't really amount to domestic violence or anything of that sort but for me it is just a, a revealing matter that there's there, there is a rise of manipulation of minors you know that the society you know old older people don't really take care of the minors because most of the people that were impregnating the teenagers you know about about riders and there are also multiple reports of domestic violence you know through battering touching mutilation and so on you know from love triangles you know we've we've heard of many stories you know just from the past two years how many cases have you heard of you know uh, someone went and they murdered their girlfriend someone went and killed their whole family and committed suicide and all that so that's what i meant by that point so my question to people was as a modern day christian what are the steps to action if you are approached by a victim of gender based violence so none of these responses uh, uh you know were were given for the sake of any anything else apart from intercession and just social justice because at that time even in our in our in our real group in our fellowship we were discussing about social justice a lot with a lot of issues of social injustices happening around the globe uh, if you could remember it was around this time that we were having the BLM black lives matter protests yeah so it it just came in handy for us to discuss such matters biblically so that we are not carried by the weight of of worldly opinions so responses also from other countries were welcome so truly it is a it is a saddening state and it just shows the state of human depravity you know to really take advantage of another person you know and to violate them for your own selfish means but most of the responses that i got were for one there there needs to be a, a lot of grounds for counseling 
for the individuals that have gone through it, you know, um, even though there can be the medicinal restoration and, and, and treatments, there's a, there are a lot of psychological, emotional wounds that are left. And there needs to be avenues for closure, for having people who are led of the spirit and they are full of wisdom in the body of Christ who are approachable and who God can use them to reach out to such people and they can open up and trust that God would start the process of healing and restoring these people. Uh, we believe in the power of our God. We believe that he is able to do anything and that even for such individuals, he, he, he is able to take them from that place where they had that opposite gender or the same gender that did that to them um, and, and restored their heart fully to come to a state of forgiveness. Well, we also know that, I, and this many people don't know, that uh, in various hospitals around Kenya, mm -hmm. there are gender-based violence centers where yeah. people can go and report issues yeah. and, and that they can get legal backing regardless yeah. of, of, uh, of whether you have the financial, you know, capacity to handle the, the legal processes they can de they can defend you they can follow up with such cases that documentary from ktn was actually an ngo that is helping those children that have been defiled to trace those cases and there have actually been a lot of breakthrough through those matters but those people had to report it to the nest, to the proper government channels and, and that is just one of them you know uh, yes we can yes, there needs to be the intervention of the church, but at the same time, God has given the government the authority to implement His justice, and that such people should not walk scot free. So uh, there needs to be a pursuit also of that, and that you go through the proper legal channels um, to avoid going going after such people in the in the spirit of revenge or doing something of that sort. Uh, that would further be displeasing before the Lord. And uh, yeah, I think th those, were, those were most of the responses that I got from that time. Yeah. And I think uh, they're appropriate for, for your question. Oh, okay. So um, I actually appreciate this because it's it really helpful to even know that... Um, there are even channels and and you know there's help you know it's not it's not hopeless eh? yeah it's not a hope it's not a hopeless situation that there is even hope in the body of christ they come into jesus mm -hmm. and also the government is there to also aid and assist us and it's, it's just i mean it's just relieving to know that that's 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 some helpful um this thing some helpful information so thank you very much um, welcome yes mm -hmm. <laughs> okay so whilst we were talking i'm mm -hmm. just thinking this is me just adding that um you know which which you can also add to this that um, domestic violence comes from a i think it's a foundational problem it's there's a root cause of it you know, cause how do you enjoy to, you know, hurt someone in that manner? Do you understand yeah. what I'm saying? Because the, the word violate means that it was possible. It wasn't 
a mutual or consented, whatever it was, right? So yeah, yeah, truly, violence violence cannot be consented at any point. Yeah, yeah and I think, uh, not I think I I started actually responding to your question by saying it's a very sad state, yeah. and it just shows the state of human depravity, mm-hmm. like the human soul without God is 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 not very very far from a wild animal you know it's survival for the fittest you know we desperately need jesus as humans you know our souls are, can be just desperately wicked and increasingly uh, very witty in 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 dark things and in and in evil practices you know and if you if you want to test that in your life and and many of you maybe have have realized just how far you can go before you met the lord you know and there's this one statement that jesus makes in the in the gospels and he says that i come that you may have life mm-hmm. and life in abundance it is not that those jews that he was speaking to were not living life he was talking of a different kind of life that he was coming to give to humanity apart from just the normal kind of life and for me what jesus is really saying in that verse is look you don't even know how to be human you don't even know how to be the way you are meant to be created and i think that is why paul introduces the subject matter of the first adam and the second adam being that the first adam fell but that through Jesus, there can be a change of nature. That deprived state of the human heart that is so sickened, that can do very evil things, you know, and think that he can just walk away with it. That the Lord can be able to change that completely to be a new creature. So the way Jesus walked, the way he lived his life in, 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 in wisdom and in prudence and in loving humanity, in loving people, we remember many cases where Jesus went, you know, and maybe a, pa- a person's daughter had died. And, you know, he is moved with compassion. We see many other instances where he sees people who are being ignored, even by religious leaders, the, the, the lamb, the, the, the people who are less privileged, who are considered to be maybe even a, an abomination to society like lepers. He has the time to stop by them, you know, to, to greet them, to be with them and to pray for God's power to heal them, to restore them, and to bring them to be uh, his disciples. So that is the way to be human. And Jesus was teaching us how to be human one-on-one. And and we, there is hope for humanity. And yes, such, such cases can just make you to feel so overwhelmed by how such people can be. But it truly tells us that we truly need salvation. Because salvation means that we are saved from ourselves more than, more than being saved from the world and anything else. We are being saved from ourselves, from our, our own human nature, which is sin. That that nature has the capacity to make us to self-destruct, to make us to fight against each other, to make us to, you know, just what you are saying right now, just to lift up your hand, to, to lift up a, we- a weapon. And you just strike another person, you know, with so much, you know, with, with so much anger and, 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 you know, 
and 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 so much evil wrought in your heart and and yeah god has has come to rewrite that by saving us from ourselves saving us from sin Thank you so so much for this. Thank you very much for your um, contributions on this topic. Uh, it's good that we talk about these things. Eh? We do not ignore that they happen even in the body of Christ. Eh? Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much. Um, before we delve into the word, I just thought we should sing a particular song or a particular um, three lines. Eh? Okay. Just before we, is that okay? We should just do that, that song. Yeah, it's okay. Oh, okay. So, um, <laughs> the song goes like this mm -hmm. one, two, three. Oh, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory Yours is the kingdom, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, yours is the glory forever. Yours is the kingdom, yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, yours. Is the glory forever. Yours is the kingdom, sing yours. Is the kingdom yours? Is the power yours? 
is the glory forever. Amen. Thank you. Nice. Um, and let us say a word of prayer just before we start, just for a few minutes. Okay. Um, just say a, a, a few minutes of prayer for Anyone who is experiencing domestic violence who is helpless, who feels helpless and just hopeless because of the situation, maybe they are violated by their you know, father, father-in-law, you know, it could be the other way around, violated by mother, mother-in-law, cousin, whatever it is, wherever they are in that state of, you know, lack of unrest and emptiness, that God will find them and God will them even in that state where they're in even right now. Father, we just speak your love over anyone that is going to be domestic violence wherever they are. In the name of Jesus, we pray for peace to us that they would find you even in this even in this empty state, oh Lord, even in this time where they feel hopeless, Lord. Bible tells us that hope does not disappoint, Lord. Father, we know that we have hope in Christ Jesus. So, Father, Lord, I just ask that that emptiness, that void, O oh Lord, be replaced with your presence, be replaced with your love, O oh Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. No one else can heal like you, Lord Jesus. So, Father, we ask that you restore and reconcile them to you, Lord, in the mighty name of Jesus. We ask that you heal those injuries, those wounds, Lord Jesus, in the mighty name of Jesus. For you, you, you have come that you may give us life. And in life, life, we don't have life that is full of hurt and wound and pain, Lord. But Father in heaven, your life is whole in itself. It is not it is not dented or you know, half or or or, or, or you know, it does not your life does not come with hearts and hearts upon hearts upon pain upon pain, you know. It comes with wholeness. Father in heaven, we just thank you for each and every one of your lives, God. And we, we, we ask that you breathe your life upon them in the mighty name of Jesus. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for this great thanksgiving. Amen. Amen. Yes. We are ready to hear from the word of God this morning. And thank you. Welcome. Thank you. Okay. Thank you for, for that. Yeah. It was a much needed ministry that many people can feel overwhelmed and distressed and very hopeful, hopeless in such circumstances. And it's, it's good to be reminded that there's a God who is in heaven, who is the eternal king, and that all these other powers, they're beneath him, and that the Lord will surely bring justice. He will surely vindicate you as long as you put your trust in him, as long as you don't put your trust in man. That God is strong and powerful enough for every situation in our life, and including these that seem very big and, 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 and very overwhelming and very intimidating to our 
human lives, we can be sure that God is a God of justice, is a God of righteousness. And that's just what we are studying this time in the book of Isaiah, that there's, a, there's, an, there's an eternal king that will surely come and release us from the hands of our oppressors, from the hands of people that have devoted themselves to make our lives hell. People that are taking away from our economy, that are taking away from the poor, that are taking away from the widows and the fatherless, and that God will come and vindicate such people, and he will bring righteousness upon the land, and that this Messiah King would bring a mighty restoration upon our land. So in as much as things are dark, things are even getting darker, we can be sure that his light will shine even brighter during such times. So I'm really, gra- I'm really uh, glad that this resonates with what we're going to be speaking on. So quite quickly, last time we did from Isaiah 1, 1 to Isaiah 2, 5. And we started to get a glimpse of, of that Messiah King and how he is merciful and compassionate and calls his people to come and reason with him and to wash away their sins, the, the sins of her bride, of his bride, sorry, and to fully restore Zion, you know, in justice and in righteousness if they repent. And yes, he confronts their sins and he tells them that they have forgotten their identity and who they are and whose they are. And that is why they are going through the emotional, political and spiritual turmoil they are going through right now. And God promises that I will purify you with my fire and that from you there will come a remnant of people that only heed unto my word and they don't bow down to idols. And we also saw that idolatry doesn't mean that people don't worship God, but they they mix the worship of God with other things. As God was um, exhorting the Israelites that, yeah, you do actually many sacrifices, you put many sacrifices in the temple, but they have become a burden unto me. So uh, we saw the various things and, and practices of the children of Israel including uh, the unrighteousness of murdering even children, the bribes of kings and, 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 and the princes of Israel, you know, and, and they mixed up very many, thing, many, very many of these things from the foreign nations that were around them, that God told them you have to execute them, you have to utterly destroy them. But the children of Israel started to compromise with them, and these are the same people that are now coming to, um, to eat into their society and to bring all manner of things and we saw that from the historical background of israel there's a there's a very consistent history of the children of israel selfishly uh, uh, having a selfish desire to be like other surrounding nations and so if a nation was strong and powerful instead of trusting and leaning on the lord they would want to form an alliance with that nation for the sake of protection and those nations time and again would come back and you know they would they would eat Israel from the back. They would come and back and, you know, they would go back on their promises. They would just, you know, take advantage of Israel time and time again. And Israel was not learning to put their total trust in the Lord. 
but we saw that there was a, a, a king, Ezekiel, who God vindicated his trust. But even at the end of his reign, he ended up compromising, and that led to the major fall of the kingdom of Judah through Babylon. So um, if, you, if, if you need more of that, you can go back to our previous podcast. Uh, today we'll just do a brief overview. We will not touch a lot when it comes to history because we did much of that last week. I will just give major highlights from last week or from from now chapter 2 verse 6 onwards so that you can see how they are applied by Isaiah in that he was prophesying during the times when these things were happening historically, you know, so that you're not just reading through, you know, names of cities and, 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 and kings that you don't understand, but you, that you get a grasp of what he was talking about. Uh, okay, so it's, it's, just a, it's just a brief, brief, brief overview. Uh, chapter 3. We have the judgment on Judah and Jerusalem. So we remember that there was a divide between North and Israel that was just called the kingdom of Israel. And then we have the, south, the southern part of Israel, which was named Judah, and its capital was Jerusalem. So Jerusalem has a lot of significance because that is where the temple of the Lord is. And, you know, Yes, there was a history of the destruction of the temple, you know, especially through the Babylonian exile. And it was again built back uh, to be a second temple. So the judgment that happens to Judah and Jerusalem was during those times when Isaiah was. And you can just see uh, the major things that they were doing, especially in chapter 3, God mentions there their sins incisely and mostly they entail social injustice like verse 5 I'll not read it uh, there was a loss of true leadership you know true leadership in Israel was a leadership that came from God we are having now people who are just giving leadership ordinarily oh you know uh, like in verse 6 you know the criteria for choosing leaders has now gone really really low it's just more of a need uh, you know we need a leader and so Whoever can lead can lead more than, you know, God give us a righteous king. So it just shows the state of, of social, moral, political, and spiritual uh, uh, loss and that, has, that had happened to Israel. And then in verse 8, you can see that uh, there's, there's a prophecy of the fall of Judah. You know, we know that Judah fell for sure uh, for trusting in other nations, for putting their trust in other gods. Uh, it surely fell uh, through the hands of Babylon. Uh, yeah. Uh, that is that. Uh, from from chapter 3 up to chapter 4, we just see the, that prophecy of, Ju- of Judah coming to a state of of deep of of utter desperation and because of of just the judgment of god that had happened to them but each time there's a proclamation of of judgment immediately it is followed by a vision of the of the messiah king who is glorified it is almost like saying okay so 
this is this is the results of me taking you through what I'm taking you through. My judgment is not just as a means of punishment, you know, I'm, I'm stamping my chest to say that I am God and you should obey me, but it is a way of restoring you and bringing out a remnant from you that will be righteous, that will end up fulfilling the, the, the purpose that I have made Israel for. So you can immediately see that chapter 3 is followed by chapter 4, where we see that there is, there is the branch of the Lord. And then uh, chapter 5, again, I, I won't mention much about it. Um, historically, it's just, again, a cry that the Israelites have departed from the things that the Lord had implemented for justice, like the year of Jubilee. We talked about the year of Jubilee where the Israelites were supposed to give back land that belonged to certain tribes. It's just like in the modern day, we have people selling their lands all over the place. So you have people that had land from their ancestors. And so they sold it to people that came from maybe another part of the country or, or, or even other country, other countries. That's the case today. So what, what was happening in the year of Jubilee was that regardless of how much you bought that land for or where you bought it from, you're supposed to leave it and go back to your native land. And that those people who had sold it, maybe because they had debt or something, they gained back their land and that everybody goes back. And there was just um, a st- uh, there, was, there was a theme of social justice that God had established through that. Slaves were going back to their homes. They were going... They're going back and getting property. That means that they were, their social status was being restored. They would go back to those places which they had lost because maybe they didn't have money, you know, and the poor and the widows were adequately taken care of in the process. So Israel had departed from that. And God is just saying that, you know, I, I, will, I, will, I will chastise you because of that. You know, you're playing with holy fire. You know, and there's a compulsory humility that must come upon you so that you go back to the nation that you are supposed to be. So, for example, in chapter 5, verse 26, God says that I will, I will raise a signal for nations far away and whistle for them from the ends of the earth and behold, quickly, speedily they come. So God is saying that, you know, just like it happened in Isaiah's time, you know, uh, all these nations that Israel had trusted, God raised even nations from far away, like Assyria, nations like Egypt, nations like Babylon, you know, and they came and they became his hand of bringing justice and judgment upon Israel and and sanctifying them to bring out a remnant. So immediately at the judgment of verse 5 again, there's a great vision of the Lord in chapter 6. So it is a consistent theme. So the Lord judges them for the sake of this so that they may go back to the glorified Lord and King, you know, and be the nation that they are supposed to be. Uh, chapter 7, there is the warning to Ahaz to trust in the Lord that happened during the time of Isaiah. Remember that Ahaz was the king of Judah. We know that Syria and Israel formed an alliance to fight Assyria, which was a major superpower. You know, when they approached Judah, Judah refused, and therefore they tried to attack Judah, but they did not succeed. But Judah, through King Ahaz, pledged their allegiance to Assyria, 
and Assyria destroyed the kingdoms of Syria and the kingdoms of Israel. And, you know, that was when Israel was taken to exile before uh, the kingdom of Judah. So in this particular case, this was Isaiah intervening, bringing God's wisdom to Ahaz before he, he, he went and consulted with the king of Assyria. So Isaiah was coming to tell him, trust in the Lord. There's an opportunity to trust in God. In, in chapter 7, verse 9, he tells him, you know, the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. So he was naming the Israelite king. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So he was saying, he was giving him an opportunity to be firm in faith, to believe and to trust God absolutely. And God even went further ahead to give Ahaz a sign to say that, okay, look, I don't even need to prove myself because my word is enough. I am God, right? But that I'm going to give you a sign. And this sign will be Emmanuel. He'll be a son. And not be, before he even knows how to choose between good and evil, the Lord will have destroyed this Assyria, uh, this Assyria and this Israel that you're so threatened about that you go and trust other people. You know, so trust in me. Before even this child knows how to choose between good and evil. I'll destroy these guys before your eyes. You know, and even though even though Ahaz went ahead and disobeyed this warning, God still fulfilled it, you know, because it is in his nature to keep his promise. And we will discuss about Emmanuel sometime later. But that is just historically speaking, that was when the prophecy of Emmanuel came. It was it came to King Ahaz as a warning of not trusting in Assyria, which was a superpower, but to trust in the Lord. Okay, uh, chapter 8 is a, is a, you know, it's, it's a partial fulfillment of chapter 7, and we will discuss that. And then... Uh, ch from, 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 from chapter 9... Uh, we're having the prophecy of for unto us a child is born, for unto us um, a child is, is, is given. And this was, you know, the, the first verse says there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. You know, it's talking about uh, Israel post, post the, the tribulation that would come upon her. So it's talking of the, of the Assyrian conquest that happened in Ahaz's time. You know, and it's saying the people that will come after that, you know, there will be people that will see the Lord's great light. And we'll, we'll, we'll read through this in terms of the New Testament because the New Testament borrows from this a lot. So that's just the historical backdrop again of that verse. It's not just a Christmas verse. It's a verse of the Messiah, of the Messiah King when he comes. And its application during that time was that it was talking about the Assyrians, you know, coming that time to conquer and to subdue Israel and Syria as God had decreed. Again, chapter 10, uh, ch uh, sorry, the same, same chapter, chapter 9, we see the judgment on arrogance and oppression. So God again lists the judgment that is coming upon Israel, you know, because of their oppression, which included uh, idolatry, social injustices that they were doing, you know, 
and God lists a statement four times. Four times God said this statement. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. That is in verse 12. In verse 17, he says the same thing. In verse 21, he says the same thing. In chapter 10, verse 4, he says the same thing. So in chapter, in, in chap, in chapter 9, verse 12, when he says, For all his hunger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still, he was speaking of the pride, the pride of Israel. And this was in, in, this was in context of verse 11 where he says, But the Lord raises adversaries of Rezin, Rezin was the king of Syria. You remember from our last podcast? So when the Lord is saying that, he says that he is raising Assyria. You know, he's saying that the Syrians on the east and the Philippines on the west devour Israel with, op- with an open mouth. <clears throat> so he's, he's even saying that these kingdoms that Israel is trusting, that is putting his hopes in them, that they will still devour Israel. And that happened. In chapter 17, when the Lord says that statement for all his for all these, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. God is saying that in terms of the moral and spiritual corruption, especially from the kings and the prophets. When he says that statement again in, in verse 21, which is the last verse of chapter 9, God is saying it in the context of the king, uh, the, the, the tribes of Israel attacking each other. And that is similar to the body of Christ. That when, when, when we attack each other, and we talked about this last time, when we attack each other, we open the doors for the enemy to break in. When God again says that statement in chapter 10, verse 4, it is in the backdrop of social injustice that he mentions. And God says that there will be an Assyrian invasion that will come. You know, 10 verse 3, it says, What will you do on the day of punishment? in the ruin that will come from afar. So it's mentioning Assyria that will come and judge Israel. So that's the historical background uh, when it comes to that. So God is constantly uh, constantly speaking through Isaiah about Assyria that is coming. And it is just like a storm that is coming, you know, upon Syria and upon Israel, you know, for, for, for trusting in men. And, and God is coming to, to ruin them, that he might make them again. So chapter 10, verse 5, again, speaks of the judgment on Assyria. So this is, this is quite a repetitive theme in the Old Testament. <clears throat> that God would use a foreign nation to be his hand of justice against Israel, but end up destroying that same nation for doing that what they did to Israel. I know it, it might seem quite absurd, but you know, think about it again. Israel was meant to be the law of the Lord to the nations. That is why God required of them to go to nations and cities that didn't worship him, you know, and to utterly destroy them. That was God's justice, you know. Uh, it was not murder. It was God bringing his hand of justice. These were societies, we talked about this last time, these were societies and cultures and civilizations that degraded humans, that were totally deprived, that they did things that were despicable before the Lord. You know, and, and we, we, did, we said last time, they did things like murdering children. They, they were possessed by demonic entities by the way of seeking necromancers that's speaking to the dead 
uh, witchcraft and various other things, you know, and Israel was meant to be the hand of the, of the, of the Lord for this matter to those nations and they were meant to bring God's justice. But because they failed to bring God's justice, God's justice still extended uh, through God bringing other nations to make Israel righteous again. So God is not partial when it comes to his justice. Even the lawmaker can be punished for breaking the law. And that was just God making a statement that even though these nations are so far away from me, they are still mine. Like I can still control them. I'm still in power. I am still in authority. And so, you know, never think that any kingdom or any power is so far from the Lord, that the Lord will use them as he wills. He used them to punish Israel and he punishes them again for punishing Israel. So that just shows that the Lord is, uh, he's, what, which phrase can I use? His will is absolute. Uh, there's no one that can question his power and his authority. That is the king that we are talking about in this series. So there will be judgment on Assyria. And how did this judgment happen? I just want to give up a historical background. Assyria was defeated by Babylon, as we talked last time. They were utterly, utterly uh, judged by the Lord. And uh, we're, we're talking from verse 20 about the remnant that will return. Uh, this again, uh, a, a prophecy about the remnant that will return from exile. Uh, verse 28 is talking about the Assyrian attacks that will happen. So God is repeating and repeating again that Assyria is coming. And this is said over the verses. Uh, it's talking about Assyria that will come to attack and Assyria, how it will be defeated, you know, by Babylon and the judgment on Babylon itself. So again, from the judgment that happens, from the judgment that God declares in chapter 10, Verse 11 is followed by, again, a vision of the Lord, a branch of Jesse. So it's a repetitive theme. God's judgment is meant to bring a remnant that will worship the true Messiah, that will worship the true King. Okay. And then... Uh, chapter 11, verse 13, is talking about... I'll just read it. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. So this is this is from the book of Judges. If you want to get a glimpse of how jealous Ephraim was, it was a very jealous tribe of Israel that was dividing them. And it just shows the domestic quarrels that gave root for this foreign nations to come and manipulate Israel because them themselves could not be united and fight against the enemies. Uh, they went different ways and sought different alliances and were fighting against each other. So verse 16 is talking about a second exodus uh, from, from, from the oppressions that they will be going through in exile. Verse 13, judge, uh, there's judgment on Babylon. You know, Babylon, yes, defeated 
Assyria. And yes, Babylon was God's hand of punishment to the tribe, uh, to the nation of Judah, uh, to the kingdom of Judah. They took them to exile, and we say that is how uh, the book of Daniel came about, and all all those uh, post-exilic books uh, that declare that Babylon conquered Judah. So Babylon, for conquer, for being God's hand of judgment upon Judah, is punished by God. So as Isaiah is prophesying about the judgment that will happen to Babylon. Uh, again, just a brief history. So how powerful was this kingdom of Babylon? Um, kingdom of Babylon mm-hmm. measured from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean Sea. So I want you to pull, up, pull out your maps. Okay, you are going to be a bit of students here. That was a large kingdom. So that just shows how these kings were so arrogant and so pride, proud. It is because they had so much power over so much land and so much peoples. And God was declaring that I will truly humble you. You know, don't think that you are, there's this term that means that they're above punishment. I'll remember it. But yeah, but don't think that you're above my law. Don't think that you're above my hand. So Babylon was a superpower after they defeated the Assyrians, as it is mentioned in chapter 10, the judgment on Assyria. And then at the end of Second Kings, again, I mentioned this to you. I gave the exact verses in the last podcast. Uh, King Cyrus of Persia defeated Babylon. So Babylon was so powerful, so great, but for a very short time. So they were conquered utterly by Persia. God used Persia, and he used a king, a king called Cyrus, uh, to restore the children of Israel, the exiles, back to Israel and to, to bring them back to worship the Lord. So God used even a foreign king, even a person who you know, we can consider can't be God's instrument of use. He used them, he used him, you know, to take them back to worship the true God. So the Medes and the Persians formed an alliance that brought this judgment on Babylon. So that was the judgment that happened in verse 13. The historical background was that the Medes and the Persians conquered them. We see in verse 17, we we say, Behold, I am stirring up the Medes, Medes or Medes, I don't know how to pronounce that. Behold, I'm stirring up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and no delight in God, meaning they can't be bribed. They are, they are coming as God's hand of judgment upon these people. Okay, and we will talk about that just a bit more later on. Chapter 14 is talking about, again, um, when the judgment of God is stated, after it, there is always a vision of the Messiah and the remnant coming back uh, to glory and to worship in God. Again, 14 verse 3, it's talking again of Babylon that was so proud, you know, because they had so much power. From uh, uh, We can see the, proud of, the pride of Babylon. Verse 13 says that, saying that you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. That literally means, you know what? I am a God. 
and I will ascend to that godlike status. And you know, these particular verses of scripture can be also interpreted to be the judgment of God on Satan. And also most of these portions of scripture about the judgment of Babylon is the same as the judgment of Babylon in the book of Revelation. But I will not touch that right now. I'm just giving a historical backdrop uh, to what happened. So because of that proud pride of Babylon, the Lord utterly destroyed them. This was, this was how God destroyed them. If you want to know, just a clue. Verse 21. Prepare slaughter for his sons because they, of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. So God was literally purging an evil, utterly evil society from spreading to the ends of the world. And that was why he was ordering Israel to go and, and destroy these nations. Because when they multiply across, across the face of, of the earth, it is evil multiplying. You know, it is the face of darkness multiplying on the face of the earth. So God was literally destroying their lineages and their generations. Uh, so again, there's an oracle concerning Assyria from verse 24. Sorry. Again, there's an oracle con concerning uh, Philistia. Uh, so in the in the time of the Philistines, also um, uh, uh, in the time of sorry in the time of King Ahaz, Phili the Philistines also were quite powerful and dominant in the region. And the Lord was de was declaring that He will deal with them against again uh, the the Moabites um, were quite stubborn in that region, and and the trouble with the Moabites was that. They actually belonged to Israel. They are, they are uh, relatives of the Israelites. And, you know, even though God shows that, you know, he does not rejoice in their punishment and God actually goes on to weep for their sake, uh, the historical background was that uh, more, the, the, the kingdom of Moab was most likely conquered by Assyria. And, you know, they were really proud because they had conquered most parts of that place where Israel is, uh, that Mesopotamian region, and they had even eaten parts of Israel's boundary. They had taken it over. So because of that, of that God declares that he is coming uh, to bring his judgment and his justice upon them. So even though God doesn't delight in that, and we can see him even weeping for their sake, for what is coming to them, where they will be destroyed by Assyria. But still, he had to stand in righteousness. Okay. In fact, he declares in chapter, six, in chapter 16, verse 13, the last verse, that in three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt. In spite of all his great multitude, and those who remain will be few and feeble. So God is saying, Look, in exactly three years, you'll be down to nothing. So this was a prophecy against the destruction of Moab, and it surely did happen. Uh, okay. Uh, verse, uh, chapter 18. Chapter 18. We see an oracle again concerning Cush. 
uh, Kush again is a is a region is a region that is quite close to Kenya. You can read the historical background, but it would be somewhere uh, close to Ethiopia or in Ethiopia. Uh, it's it's around that place. Um, so again, uh, the Lord declares, you know, judgment upon that place, you know, and that God would stop them on their tracks and judge them. So all these kingdoms that were prominent in the time of Isaiah, God was declaring that he would bring humility upon them. And he was assuring them that there would be um, a messianic victory that is coming and that all kingdoms will bow and all tongues will confess that Jesus is Lord. So again, chapter 19, an oracle concerning Egypt. Why Egypt? Because we remember King Hoshea the king of Judah, how he trusted in Egypt while at the same time he is keeping alliance with Assyria and that, and that, uh, uh, and that meant that uh, Assyria came and utterly destroyed Israel. Sorry, he was the king of Israel and Assyria came and took Israel into exile. Again, chapter 16, right after the judgment, there's a proclamation of the restoration of the remnants and in, and in fact this time the remnants include Egypt and Assyria that means that the remnants at the end times will also include the gentile nations so we'll cover up to there that was yesterday's reading chapter 19 we ended we ended up at chapter 19 so those are the historical backgrounds so when you are reading about those nations and cities and all that uh, at that time, these were really huge kingdoms and powers of the earth. And that God was declaring that, look, without me, you are utterly nothing. Without me, even when you boast in your, in, in your, in your, in your cities and in your resources, I am the one who is capable of sustaining you. I am the only one who is the Lord above you. So that is the righteous king that we are dealing in, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I pray that uh, this is assuring in your heart that the Lord truly has things under control, regardless of how they go, regardless of how hopeless the situations will be. But yet at the same time, I pray that this brings you back to the fear of the Lord. When you declare that Jesus is Lord, when you declare that he is king, this is the king we are dealing with, and that it is really a terrifying thing to be an enemy of the Lord. It's really a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very prudent and it's very, uh, uh, you would be deemed wise when you walk according to his ways because being on the wrong side of this king is a terrible thing. It's something that you can't deal in. And that is what we were reading from last week from James chapter 3 verse 13 up to chapter 4. I will not read it again. James was, was declaring that, you know what, when we mix our worship with God, with our own selfish de desires and our pride, we end up declaring ourselves as enemies of God. We don't want to be his enemies. See how he deals with his enemies. See how he deals with people who end up rebelling against the Lord. None of us want to be in that lot. 
That is the king that we are dealing with. You don't want to be an enemy of the Lord. You want to be close to him. You want to love him. You want to be on his side because away from him is only death. Away from him is only humiliation for you. Okay. So I just want to mention some repetitive themes from these books that will also help you to understand them better. Number one being, there's this theme about the Lord of hosts. That is the king that we're dealing with. The Lord of hosts means that he's the God of armies. As uh, Matt Redman sang in one of his songs, he says that he's the God of angel armies. You know, how can he bring down such huge kingdoms in just one day? You know, he's, he's the Lord of war, you know. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we, we see this term repeated time and time again, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. Have time to consider that. He's the Lord of armies, you know. And when we truly lift up our eyes from the things that seem overwhelming on the earth, from the kingdoms and the powers of the earth that seem to be so strong, when we just lift up our eyes and really see who the Lord is, who, which king we call our king, that he is truly the Lord of hosts, that he is more, he's infinitely more powerful and mighty. I remember one of the prophets, I think it was Elijah or Elisha, at one moment, he just had one of his servants, you know, and they were, there was a decree by a king to come, you know, after him. And his servant from afar saw a great army coming. You know, and you went to cry to the prophet. You guys can do your research. I don't remember who this is really. And the prophet prayed that the Lord would open the eye of the eyes of this servant. And when his eyes were open, he could see chariots, big ones, more big, more bigger than those ones that were coming to attack them. You know, and that is the sort of vision that we need to go back. That when we when we know who our Lord is, when we know that he is the Lord of hosts, we know that truly he will come and deal with these nations and kingdoms and powers that think that they are so powerful and so great. He'll come and deal with those people who are misusing authority. He'll come and deal with those people who are misusing the hand of the law. God will deal with them righteously. <clears throat> Secondly, another repetitive theme is a three-part fulfillment of prophecy. Prophecy has an immediate fulfillment and then a future fulfillment. This is, this is a repetitive thing throughout prophecies. For example, uh, the prophecy on Emmanuel. Okay. Remember Emmanuel? The prophecy, sorry. The prophecy that was given to Ahaz by Isaiah, telling him that, this will be a sign uh, from the Lord that when you put your faith in him, God will fulfill his word. And even though Ahaz ended up not putting his faith in the Lord, God still fulfilled that prophecy to show him that God is true to his word and that God can destroy uh, uh, those people that were enemies of Israel without even the need of having to form alliances with other nations. So this was the prophecy that uh, uh, sorry, this is chapter 7, verse 16. 
for the boy knows how how to refuse uh, for before that boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good the land whose whose two kings you dread will be deserted so ahaz was fearing the the alliance between syria and israel you know he he, he feared their alliance and 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 how they were uh they had pledged that they were his enemies and how they had pledged that they are against him. And so he wanted to trust in Assyria. So these were the two, two kings that he dreaded. And God was saying that before the boy knows how to refuse to choose evil and to choose good, the land who, whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The immediate fulfillment of this is chapter 8. Chapter 8, uh, Isaiah conceived and bore a son in chapter 8 verse 3 and then the Lord said call the name of the son uh, call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz it's a long name Maher Shalal Hashbaz uh, maybe I'm maybe I'm killing that pronunciation but it was something of that sort and We are told that this boy, that before the boy knows how to cry, this was the prophecy about this boy, before he knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus, that is the capital for Syria, and the spoil of Samaria, that is the capital of Israel, will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So that, so that is an immediate fulfillment of Emmanuel, meaning that God is with us. This son of Isaiah was assigned to us that God is with you, that when you trust him, he's, he's right here. He's Emmanuel. You know, trust in him. You can put your firm faith in him. You know, and, and this surely did happen. So there's an immediate fulfillment through Isaiah's son. That was the sign. But also, we know that the sign of Emmanuel speaks about the coming Messiah who is uh, who is Emmanuel, who is as a son, you know, and when he comes, he'll be a sure sign that the Lord is with us and surely he came and we know that the Lord is surely with us and even up to you right now, this is a sign to you that because Jesus came, because the Messiah came, we can put our absolutely our absolute trust in him, you know, because you know why? Before even he comes and establishes his earthly kingdom, he has already defeated the powers of darkness. He has already defeated sin for your sake. He has already declared that all authority on heaven and earth, they belong unto me. So he's truly our Emmanuel. He's truly with us. We can put our trust in him. So another part of, uh, 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 another example of two-part fulfillment of prophecy was what we are talking about when it comes to Babylon. Do you remember that statement uh, from chapter 14, where it says, uh, chapter 14, verse 12, how you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nation's law, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high, I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high. Man, Babylon was rude. Babylon was proud. Literally, they were saying that, you know what, we are gods. We will, we, 
we will build our kingdom so that we are we are on the same level with God. You know, we are just like one of Him. And yes, the immediate fulfillment of this was that yes, uh, Babylon was so proud, it was so arrogant. We remember King Nebuchadnezzar, but the Lord brought him to be so so low. And the same same thing will happen at the at the end of the age. Uh, read Revelations, the book of Revelations. We said that. Babylon again, we see his pride. We see the pride of Babylon coming back again and that the Lord declares the judgment on Babylon. And just like in chapter 14, God declares that Babylon will be utterly destroyed. And actually Babylon was destroyed, utterly destroyed by the Medes and the Persians. At the end of the age also, there's a total destruction that is declared upon Babylon. So you can see there, there are consistent themes one is an immediate fulfillment and one is a future fulfillment of the same same thing. And lastly, the remnant. We have read about the remnant all throughout. God will bring judgment but leave a few people who will come back to repent and to be his true people. This is a repetitive theme in Isaiah. In most of the prophets up to the New Testament, the remnant is a repetitive thing, meaning there's an immediate fulfillment and there's a future fulfillment. Okay. The third repetitive theme is a child ruler that is given authority by the king. Okay. Uh, from chapter 11. Chapter 11, uh, when, when it's mentioning about the, the stamp of Jesse, which was a prophecy that also was used for the Messiah. Uh, chapter 11, verse 6, it says, During the Messiah's reign, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and, uh, uh, and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. So it is, it is a very, very consistent theme. We have learned about children, right? We have learned about Emmanuel. There's a declaration of, of a child leading Israel. Maybe I'll give you just a few more examples of this same same theme of a child that is a leader that is given authority by God. Um, chapter 9, for unto us a child is born. Uh, that is another one. Uh, Just going through to see that I've not left out any more example that would help you guys. Hmm. Okay, I. I I think you can do your homework and that you'd find it, uh, I found it in my study that this is quite a repetitive theme. Uh, I won't, I won't go into the, to the details right now, but you can see that there's a child ruler that is given authority by the king. Remember the verses in the New Testament that says that God chooses the weak things of the earth. 
to make foolish those those who think that they are wise and i think this is the way that he's going that israel is expecting this sort of a ruler that will be so powerful like the babylonians and the assyrians but god is promising a child you can say ha huh? you know it seemed like it seems like an insult to their moral social and political situation at that moment but god is saying that you know the king and the ruler that i will choose for you you know will come in meekness will come in humility he will not be this big shot superpower that you're expecting but that i will use him for my purposes and this theme of a child leader that will come and rule and is given authority by the king also does speak of the church you know that will be god's hand god's hands of 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 rulership and his kingdom on the earth that we as believers yes we are we are weak that yes we are not the almighty and the all powerful but that the lord has chosen us the lord has put his treasure in earthen vessels so another fourth uh, a fourth repetitive theme that you'll find is that the uh, the lord of hosts will bring purity in the land and lead to repentance and praise uh, of the remnant so we see over and over again we have seen that when we have been reading that every time god declares a judgment that brings purity immediately after that shoot, there is a mention of the king of the kingship of messiah and a remnant so that's a very repetitive theme again the fifth and the last repetitive theme that you'll find is that all these themes that you have mentioned from verse 1 up to verse 4 will produce a remnant for the king including gentiles so yes we have mentioned the remnant but there is also a surety that this remnant will include the gentiles as as we have read uh from from just the, the last few chapters that i mentioned when i was mentioning the historical background chapter 19 from verse 16 we see that even egypt is even assyria and 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 israel all combined there will be a remnant as unto the lord so it also includes the gentiles that it is not just israel like israel alone but there will be gentiles chapter 14 we see the same thing god says for the lord will have compassion on jacob and will choose israel will again choose israel so this is the, the remnant and we talked about this last time that there's a there's a huge topic of the remnant and god's election god is the one that chooses the remnant they don't choose themselves and the basis for god choosing the remnant we say it is because they chose god when there were other alternatives that made them to be candidates for god to choose them so that's what is being mentioned here so for the lord will have compassion on jacob and will again choose israel and will set them in their own land and sojourners sojourners will join them and will attach themselves to the house of jacob so this talking about gentiles coming from other nations and being a part of the kingdom of israel and this 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 is not a foreign concept even in the old testament we are told that we are joined unto the branch of israel as believers we who are uh, gentiles that we have come unto the house of israel okay so that's that when it comes to those themes hopefully they'll guide you guys hopefully they'll open your eyes to the wider scripture you know to the wider length of scripture i like i like seeing the scripture in a larger picture 
So hopefully, this would also help you to unpack the same same themes repetitively through the Bible, and to see that when God insists on a particular thing like this, He's surely intentional about it. Okay. Secondly, I'd like us to look at some world views. World views from the time where when Isaiah was. So a worldview is the lens through which you view the world. These are philosophies, these are ideologies, these are doctrines, you know, that you view the world. So a very consistent worldview is a place called Sheol, S-H-E-O-L, Sheol. It is the Old Testament's interpretation of hell. So this seems to be a very damning place. The way it is described is just horrendous. And those who are enemies of God, who are oppressors of God, who refuse to repent even after his judgment, that God promises that that, is, that will be their home. You can see this in chapter 14. Okay. Chapter 14, verse 9. Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the sheds to greet you. All who are leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones, all who are kings of the nations. So it seems to be a place where there is no impunity. Yeah, impunity was the word I was looking for. That these kings of the earth that thought that, thought that they had impunity, that they were above the law, that they were above being judged and being... Uh, uh, taken into account that the Lord promises there's a place that is coming, you know, and it just captures all of these guys to that place. And, you know, it's a place where there is total absolute punishment. Uh, again, chapter 14, verse 11, it says, your pomp is brought down to Sheol. The sounds of your hops, maggots are laid as a bed be beneath you. And worms are your covers. Oof. Uh, does that sh send shivers through your body? Does that give you chills? You know, a place where maggots are your bed, you know, and worms are your bed. Can you imagine your duvet, your bed cover being maggots, being worms, you know, and your mattress? That's the place where you lie down, you know. So it seems to be this place of utter destruction and judgment towards these guys. So, yeah, this this is something that we'll find a lot in Isaiah and the other prophets. So at that time, they uh, there was not a huge revelation about hell, about, uh, you know, such things. You, you know, it was just a partial, a partial revelation that God had given them. We know that when Christ came, you know, and there was a full revelation of the intentions of God and the heart of God. Uh, we now see uh, <clears throat> a much deeper interpretation of hell in the New Testament. So hell is real. Hell is sure. And it is promised to all those people that will be enemies of God. So it is not something that was brought by the New Testament. It is not just something that was formulated you know, to make the gospel more convincing. As some people would say, hell is 
is very much a part of God's plan for justice and righteousness. That there will be a sure judgment. It is as sure as day, as you expect morning to come, as you expect night to come, there is hell. It is that sure. It is real. It is not fantasy. It is there. You know, when Jesus mentions the parable of of, uh, of, the, of the poor man and the rich man, and that the poor man was being oppressed and that he was just eating the scraps of the rich man, you know, such a symbolic picture of social injustice today, you know, and the rich man was so cruel to him. But at the, at the end, the rich man went to the, the, the depths of hell. You know, he could see the poor man who was so dependent on God while he was alive. And he was even asking for the rich man just to give him his, the crumbs of his bread that right now he's at Abraham's bosom and that he's there with the Lord. You know, and the, the rich man really admires him and asks Father Abraham, please, just a drop of water. And asks him, please, go and tell my brothers, you know, to repent, to turn unto the Lord, so that they may not come unto this place. So when Jesus is mentioning that, uh, it's from the weight of this topic, from the Old Testament. All scriptures carry this theme, very surely such a place. Another worldview comes also from Isaiah 14, verse 12 to 14. We have read that already. Uh, it is Babylon declaring that it will be on the same level with the Most High. Uh, such pride. And <clears throat> when Babylon says that uh, chap uh, chapter 14, verse 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. Stars of God. Again, we see verse 12, it says, O Daystar, son of dawn, so what's the big deal with these stars? Why are stars being mentioned here? Why are they being personified? Because the Israelite worldview was that heavenly, heavenly bodies were a representation of divine beings. So that is also a worldview during that time. You'll find even in other prophets, there's a lot of... Uh, uh, heavenly bodies that are being equated with divine beings. You remember even in the book of Revelation, we are told of the dragon, the beast chasing the woman, and something like, you know, the sun is under her feet or the stars or something of that sort. I can't give the whole details, but heavenly bodies are mentioned as a sort of uh, of, of reference to spiritual beings to divine beings so this was this was the israelite worldview and it was actually the canaanite worldview even other tribes even other nations i'm sorry other nations that surrounded israel in the mesopotamian region if you read their books if you read their worldviews they also saw heavenly bodies as a way to represent divine beings and always and almost always, um, God is in a mountain uh, sort of place. You know, uh, we are told, um, chap uh, again, chapter 14, verse 13, I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. So mountains 
mountains again in the world view of the of the Israelites at this time mountains were symbolic of a place that is lifted up so it was they believed somehow that divine beings dwelt in mountains and mostly it was god because god revealed himself in mountains like mount sinai we had mountains like mount zion that these mountains always carried some spiritual significance they were the, they were more than just places for hiking at that time they were more than just a volcanic eruption geological structures at that time you know they had some real reverence to those places being that they they went there to put their altars to pray you know remember shilo yeah you know and various other places mountainous places that people went to worship the lord so it was just symbolic uh, they believed it was symbolic to be the place where god dwelt why because it's separated from humanity the most of them are really high and in a desolate place and you know in the mountains also there is almost always life there's just so much life there's so much green and lush even when when the, when when the plain land is perishing uh, uh that place is almost always in its own climate because of how high it is its altitude and all that so this is a repetitive theme in the old testament you see the mountains mount zion you know and various other mountains that are mentioned with with some sort of spiritual reverence and the same thing even in the new testament we remember paul was saying for you know we have not come unto mount sinai but we have come unto mount zion the city of the living god so it is a mountain that is named it is a real mountain but there's a spiritual significance that comes to it paul goes ahead to say is the mountain of the living god where the spirit the spirit of the righteous made perfect the innumerable amount of angels are there so there's a lot of spiritual divine divine beings that are in such place you know that it uh, it is symbolic of worship it is symbolic of divinity another world view again from isaiah chapter 14 verse 5 to 21 So Isaiah 40 uh, 14 has a lot of world views that you can unpack about how these these guys thought ab- around that time when it when they what they thought about the spiritual beings and the way they relate to the world. So <clears throat> from verse 5 to 21 it declares uh the end time judgment of Satan and that whatever was happening with Israel and Judah and especially this was Judah because Judah was the one that was taken to exile with Babylon that Babylon was more than just a political kingdom it was a spiritual force there was a spiritual warfare that was behind human chaos at this time we have talked about at the beginning of this po- podcast of how the heart of a human is desperately wicked and that if it is not submitted unto the lord it is just like an animal it's competition for the fittest i mean it's survival for the fittest it's a competition between which kingdom is better than who and you know they would stample against each other and kill uh, each other's children and women and just do horrendous things to themselves and there were there were nations and cities that would just put these mad sacrifices human sacrifices and all these practices and rituals that made sure that the rich remained rich and the poor remained poor you know and 
when all those wars were happening, when all those social injustices were happening, just a state of human chaos, Isaiah and the Lord is revealing at this time through Isaiah that behind all those things is a spiritual uh, is a spiritual warfare that is happening. That there is a spiritual rebellion against the Lord Almighty. That they are behind these nations and why they are sinning and rebelling against the Lord. Why? Because there was a close relationship between these foreign nations. Uh, their king sought other deities. Uh, we know from the kingdom of Egypt, for example, it was one of the superpowers. You can see from their ancient ruins, they have a lot of gods and, and, and all these other people that they were seeking. You know, there's a lot of divinity going on, but it, it is not worshipping the true God. You can see from other Mesopotamian cultures how they sought other gods, gods with a small g, you know, how they sought necromancers and witches and all those things. And even Isaiah mentioned to them here that these people sought out for those things. And you could see that because there is this spiritual environment, that these kings trusted in witchcraft to guide their political uh, endeavors and, and, their, and to maintain them in high power, that these spiritual beings are the ones that are behind the human corruption and the human chaos that was going on at that time. So even up to today, when you see political chaos, when you see human chaos, people in high power that just want to retain, the, to retain dictatorship and to reign years and years while oppressing people, behind that narrative, behind those people, there's a spiritual warfare that is going on. You know, there are real spiritual forces that are in play and that they are out to oppress the people of God. Like it is not, this is not uh, being charismatic. It is not anything about, you know, being too spiritual or anything of that sort. It is a reality. It is a spiritual reality according to scripture. That there are spiritual forces that are behind, that they influence the decisions of such kings and such rulers that always make sure that people are in a state of, of hopelessness people in a state where they, 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 they feel there's no justice, there's no peace, there's no place for integrity in the land. The systems are just meant to oppress you no matter how hard you work, you know, and all that stuff. That there's a, there's a spiritual force that is behind that. And, and, and Paul continues this theme in the New Testament. He continually mentions, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers of darkness. He's mentioning authorities. He's mentioning spiritual kingdoms. Remember Daniel when he was praying and actually Daniel was, was praying during the time when Babylon was, had taken Israel to exile and when he was praying a, a principality, a power of darkness called the Prince of Persia uh, delayed his prayers you know, and the Lord had to send an archangel to fight that principality and that power of darkness. So behind the Babylonian kingdom that was there, there was a whole theme of spiritual beings that are in power, that control the way men go. And they want, they want humanity to consume themselves and to destroy themselves so that 
God's plan will not come into place. But God is above them all. And that even though they are up to humanity destroying themselves, God always comes out on top by leaving a remnant that comes back unto him. That even when they think that they are in control, even when they think that they have won by bringing Israel to its knees, God still has a way of bringing out a remnant that will come back to worship him, that will come back to praise him. Praise God for that. Okay, uh, I think those are good enough for you. Finally, uh, just some things that you can note as you read. There is also, this is a repetitive theme, but I, I thought to just put it aside so that you may study it on its own. There's a repetitive statement called the day of the Lord. It's mentioned over and over and over. In that day, in that day, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. It's mentioned in the book of Isaiah. And this day of the Lord is also mentioned up to the New Testament. There are actually 63 explicit scriptures in the New Testament that mention about the day of the Lord. I will read one of them from Isaiah 3. I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3. Verse 13. First Corinthians 3, verse 13. Okay. I know you're there by now. Each one's work will become manifest for the day. Notice the days in capital letter. Capital letters. The D is in capital. Each one's work will be made manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and fire will test what sort of work each one has done. So notice those work. The day, each one's work to be revealed by fire. Fire will test each one's work. Okay. So read about the day of the Lord in the book of Isaiah. Mostly the day of the Lord comes with a lot of judgment and fire, just as is mentioned by 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's a purifying fire of the Lord that is surely coming. So this day is surely there. There's a day of the Lord. It's a terrible day. It's a day that, yes, the Lord Jesus saved us from it. It's an eschatological day. That means the end of time of the Lord. And the New Testament actually amplifies this theme from the Old Testament, right? There is a day of the Lord that is coming, friends. It is as sure as day again. It is there. It's a day where every knee shall bow down and every time we will confess that Jesus is Lord. We can never say that we are fully prepared for that day. But that each and every day of our lives, we can, we can continually lean upon the cross of Jesus and his righteousness. And know that one day we'll be held accountable for what we are doing. One day we'll be held accountable for what we did with our lives. And yes, we can have faith, as Paul says, that in that day we will receive God's mercy. We will have that hope because of Jesus. 
you know, but that's it. It is only because of Jesus. If you mix your life with anything else, there's no hope for you on that day. We can only hope on that day because of the Lord, that he will blot out our sins. As he has said, come reason with me. Even though your sins are red, as red, are red as crimson, I will make them pure. So let us lean closer to the Lord as ever before. That on that day, as Paul declares in the New Testament, that we will have confidence to stand before the Lord. Second thing that I'd like you to note is the whole theme of conversion. What is conversion? And mostly when people speak of conversion, they speak of Paul's conversion into the lordship of Jesus. Remember that Paul uh, uh, was one of the Jewish leaders and that he was given the right and the authority to persecute Christians and that he was so notorious in killing Christians that even ministers of God feared him. He was actually responsible for the killings of people like Stephen. We remember Stephen that was stoned. You know, there's a mention of Paul over there. And in one of the testimonies of Paul, when he was giving his life account to one of the kings uh, that had captured him during when he was preaching the gospel, Paul says that during that time, he thought that he was serving the Lord. He thought that he was serving God. And you might say that is absurd, but actually, according to Jewish tradition, he was quite right because we remember people like Phinehas in the Old Testament that was a zealot. Uh, Phinehas was a, a priest during the days of, Mo of Moses. And there was one time that the Israelites, even though God had told them not to mingle with other nations, they started to fornicate with, uh, with a foreign nation. It was so bad that a child of a Jewish leader, of an Israelite leader, went to a daughter of another leader in that foreign nation, brought her to the temple, and they were literally having fornication in the temple when Moses was there with some other believers and they were praying. Like it was that bad. You know, and Phineas was so angered by that thing that he took a spear and he went and pierced that Israelite and that and that and that uh, daughter of of the foreign leader. So there was a lineage of people that came after Phineas that they believed that they were also zealots, that they were people whom God had put to purify Israel and to make sure that the worship of Yahweh is not mixed with other things. So Paul thought that he was coming from that lineage. He thought that he was doing God's work until he met the Lord on his way to, I think it was Damascus. Correct me if I'm wrong. But yeah, remember Paul, God's light shone upon him and he became blind. And after that, his heart was changed. He was told to go to a certain man whom God had ministered to him. And that man ministered to him and opened his eyes. And Paul was totally and absolutely changed. So this is what we are seeing in chapter 9. Chapter 9 is also a verse about the conversion. The conversion 
of Israel to bring a remnant. Actually, we'll give it context from verse 8. We see that Isaiah declares that, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me, they are for signs and wonders. We have read that scripture over and over again. No, but when you look deeper into it, and especially from the historical background, Isaiah is declaring what? He's declaring that the remnant whom the Lord has given upon that time, that there will be a sign and a wonder to the nations. And verse 19, we can see that this Isaiah continuing to say, and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers to chop and matter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? So this, this just shows the evil practices that Israel had adopted from the other nations, and we have mentioned that before. So he's saying that the remnant will not inquire of such things, but that they would inquire of the Lord. But that those who refuse to repent, verse 22, they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, they will be thrust into darkness. So that is a contrast between those who will look up to the Lord and those who will look to the earth. And those who will look up to the Lord, uh, as I declares that there will be there uh, there will be signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Right? So there's a backdrop there that the Lord is speaking about the remnant. So chapter 9 is coming from that context. And it says, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish, meaning, meaning that they were in this uh, anguish of that time. You know, we've talked about this when Assyria, you know, came into conquest during that time of Ahaz. So in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land of the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep, deep darkness and then light has, has come, has shined. This is actually a, a, a prophecy that was fulfilled during the time of Jesus, when Jesus came. It's in Matthew chapter 4, verse 12 to 16, that right after Jesus was tempted by Satan, he went into this region that was a land that was beyond the Jordan, you know, a land between Zebulun and Naphtali. You can read about it there. This exact verse is quoted. So you can see, this same land, right, in the former times was a place of, of darkness, was a place where people had rebelled against the Lord. But Isaiah had declared that the remnant of the Lord will be a people who will not sort out to look to the earth, will not sort out uh, earthly wisdom through necromancers and, 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 and mediums and all those things, but that behold the children whom God has given me, they are for signs and they are for wonders. So literally what Isaiah is saying that including him himself as a prophet and the family that God had given him, including all those remnants that will come back from exile that the Lord has given them 
to be for signs and wonders on the earth. What that means is that when God changes your heart privately, God will use those changed people to go and change the world. And that is what conversion means. Conversion means a change of the heart. It's not just Paul converting to Christianity, we can, but we can see a completely different Paul in the New Testament. You know, he completely ended up loving the people whom he hated so much. He ended up being a very humble person and a person who rejoices in the Lord, whether he has something or he doesn't have something, whether he's in suffering or not, he's devoted, he's dedicated unto the Lord. So there was a complete change of heart with Paul. And what Isaiah here is declaring is that we give ourselves to the Lord fully, to his light, that he may change us from within. And when God changes us from within, because we will be changed people, we will go out and we will change the world. We will be signs and we will be wonders. And this can be seen through Jesus. Jesus went preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And this verse was quoted, Isaiah chapter 9, that the people who actually walked in darkness, meaning they were walking in ignorance to the Lord, they have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in deep darkness on them, the light has shined. What was this light? It was the light of the gospel of the kingdom. That when Jesus went to proclaim the kingdom of God, the light had come unto them. So today I want to remind you that you are the light of the world. You are not meant to be influenced by darkness, but to influence darkness. And how will the kingdom of God be revealed during this time? Because Jesus declared that the kingdom has come. His reign as a Messiah, it is to be revealed through you, right here and right now. That we go back to the drawing board, we go back unto the Lord and ask him to really change our hearts. That our worship needs to get to that place where it changes our hearts, it changes our view. You know, many a times, and this has happened to you in the past, I guarantee for sure, in your work of faith that there are times when we walk with the Lord and he changes the way we view things, the way we view people. He completely changes our hearts regarding some certain things. And immediately when that happens, you're like a new person when it comes to that particular area of your life. And that because you're that, the way you act and you behave with regards to that particular thing that you are changed becomes an example to someone else. And that's how it's meant to be, that when God changes us in our private closet, that we go out there and we emulate his glory, we become signs and we become wonders. We become a light that shines onto the, onto the earth. And when changed people go on multiplying themselves, meaning they give, they, they give birth, they replicate themselves, or they have disciples, these disciples, when they spread all over the earth, it is the kingdom of God that is coming. Why? Because wherever there will be, there will be justice. Wherever there will be, there will be equality. Wherever there will be, the poor will be taken care of. Wherever there will be, there will be harmony. Wherever there will be, there will be worship. So these are the remnant. These are the people who declare God's light. That is conversion. Have we allowed God's light to come into our hearts, to change us completely? 
or is our worship convenient? If our worship doesn't bring us to a place where God changes things in our hearts, if our worship just makes us to justify the things that we are doing in our life, it is not worship enough. We have to declare like Isaiah. Isaiah was declaring that starting from me and my family, we have given ourselves up unto the Lord for him to change us and to change our hearts. And that when he changes our, our, our hearts, we will go out there and we will become signs and wonders. We will not seek after worldly wisdom. We will not bow down to culture. We will not bow down to the things of society. But that we will go out there and we will be a change. Where there is hopelessness, where people are taking advantage of each other, where people are corrupt, where people are doing all manner and kinds of things, you know, that demean human life, that I will be a change in that place. You know, just picture it. If, 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 if Jesus is the king of your heart and he totally changes you and that there are many people like you all over the world, there would be true change. But that change cannot happen if us in our lives, ourselves, we are not changed. So you cannot say that Jesus is the king of your life and he has not changed. If he has not changed something inside you, there's an issue. Okay. Second Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6. Second Corinthians chapter four verse six declares, "For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory in the face of Jesus Christ." So Paul is is interpreting uh, Genesis when God says, "Let there be light." Paul is saying, just like God declared during that time that let there be light. And that light indicated the beginning of creation. God has shown the same light in us. That the light that he has shown in our hearts, which is the knowledge of Jesus Christ and his face of glory. Sorry, it's the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That means that the face of Jesus Christ literally means our intimacy with him, our union with him, our oneness with him, that we see him face to face, his glory, right? That in that place of intimacy with our Lord Jesus Christ is the, is the place where the light is meant to shine in our hearts. That place of worship, that place where we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that that was the light that was shone, just like in Genesis. And what happened when the light was shone? There was immediate change. Immediately things started to form here, things started to form there, things started to be created out of nothing. And that, was what, that is what Paul is declaring. That that same God that declared, let light shine out of darkness, that there's a light that he has shown, and that light is 
is worship, is intimacy with the Lord Jesus, that we see him face to face and we see his glory and that we are never the same. And the same verse, uh, the same the same book, I think it's Corinthians, again, it says that we have behold, beheld of his glory face to face, you know. And he says that it is not like Moses, whom when he saw the glory of God, you know, the, the children of Israel feared and, they, and he had to cover his face. But now we have seen his face, his, his face, uh, uh, we have seen him face to face. And that as we see his glory, we are being transformed into his image. So when we, are in, when we are intimate with the Lord in worship, we continually become like him. We must change. There is something that must change. There is something that must be created in you. Just like when the light shone in the, in, the, in the book of Genesis and creation started. So conversion means that there must be a change. There must be a change of your heart. And when that happens and you go and emulate God out there, you end up forming disciples and those disciples will form other disciples. And by that virtue, the kingdom of the Lord is spreading all over the earth. And that yes, the ultimate kingdom of God will come at the end of times. But that is the, is the fulfillment right now of the kingdom of God through his church. Okay, I'll move on as we finish. Another thing that I'd like you to, to note is that God uses children to carry out his reign in the earth. And we have read that we have, we have we have read that there are children that they are mentioned that are given authority by the Messiah King, and that, and and that is the body of Christ. Those are the sons and the daughters of God. So, do you feel weak and insufficient for the gospel? Congratulations, you are qualified just by that. God uses the weak things of the earth to declare his reign and his kingdom on the earth. And it's so simple. Uh, it is not, it is not the, the idea that such people might have about the kingdom of God that it, it is not to say that the kingdom of God will be like the church becoming like an authority on its own on the earth, you know, and becoming like a government. No, it does not mean that. That is... That is quite an, another ideology, but the kingdom of God means that Jesus reigns in our lives, literally. He dictates everything, and he makes us to be better human beings, and he totally transforms us when we are in place, when we are in a place of intimacy with, with him. He transforms us, and he brings, he brings the best out of humanity. And that by that, the kingdom of God is reigning. We have, we have read about the reign of the Messiah when he will come. It will be a time when, imagine a lamb, a gazelle eating with a lion. You know, children even playing with snakes. There's a place where the reign of the Messiah is declared. And we are told that a child will put his hand in the hole of a snake and it will be okay. And it's a time of total, absolute peace. And that is what is meant to be in our lives. I'm not saying that now we go and touch snacks, guys, okay? Because of the king. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that because the king is reigning in our lives right here and right now, uh, there are things in our lives that are meant to reflect that there is a king. 
There's a way that we walk. There's a way we talk. There's a the way we handle conflicts with wisdom and with love and with the spirit of God. You know, that people can see that harmony. People can see that reign of the Messiah that is happening within us. Okay. Lastly, lastly, is about the kingship of Jesus. The kingship of Jesus is so, so necessary. What is the answer to the political situations in the earth right now, to the cultural confusion, to a church that is so divided? It is the kingship of Jesus Christ. We've read it over and over again that Israel is so utterly threatened by the other kingdoms of the earth. It is so hopeless and feels defenseless. And what is God's solution? The Messiah. He mentions the promise of the Messiah. That the kings of Israel want to depend on other nations, but God promises the Messiah. That Israel is so lost and it's so dark and it's, it's, it has just become another totally different nation than what God intended. But what is God's solution? The Messiah. He mentions the king. The kingship of Jesus is so necessary. And we have, we have, we have, we have read why. Because when God reigns in our hearts, he totally changes, changes us. He totally and absolutely changes us to his will and to his way. And that is the only way to worldly peace. That is the only way to worldly harmony. Treaties are good. National alliances can be okay for trade and all those things. That is fine. But at the end of the day, let us not put our trust in them. Let us not put our trust in constitutions and amendments. Let us put our total and absolute trust in the Lord. There's a quote from Adam Welch. It says, the perfect eternal state of humanity is not a democracy, republic, or a communist society, but a kingdom ruled by a king. I'll finish by giving you these quotes of scripture about the kingship of Jesus from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 10 to 25, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 1 to 5, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 to 9, Isaiah chapter 12, and Isaiah chapter 14. You can see that the restoration of social order when the king comes, and that there will be judgment of spiritual forces that are behind violence. So even right now, when God begins to reign in our hearts, there is an authority that comes to the believer. What did God say? To the disciples before he left, he says, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. So making disciples is a major part of the kingship of Jesus because it means what? That the Lord literally comes to the hearts of many men and transforms them. And what do those men go do? They go and they cast out demons. They go and bring healing. They go and bring reconciliation. They go and became, become men of peace wherever they are. And by that they declare the kingdom of God. By that they declare that they are the signs and the wonders that the Lord has put on the earth. And also it means 
that there is a sure judgment that is coming to all the oppressors of men at the end of day, of the, of, at the end of the age. That sense, there is a sure judgment of the Lord that is coming upon all the oppressors of men. We have seen the judgment of Babylon. We have seen the judgment of Assyria. We have seen the judgment of Egypt. All the powers at that time that the Lord surely dealt with them. And we can be sure about the kingdoms of the earth right now. That those who are taking advantage of humanity to empower themselves, to lift themselves up in pride. That those who are scheming and doing secret schemes, you know, to take advantage of people and populations and economies. That the Lord will utterly deal with them. Don't feel hopeless. Don't feel derailed. The Lord God Almighty will rise victorious. The Messiah will bring his judgment and on that day, we are promised that it will be a day of peace. That the day of the Lord is coming. And that even as we wait for the day of the Lord, the kingdom of God is here and right now. Let us allow it to transform our hearts. And that that kingdom will spread swiftly when we go and form disciples. And we go and become an example of the gospel wherever we are. And by that, we'll be shining the light of God. That's all that I have for today. May God bless you richly and keep you in his love. Amen. Amen. Thank you for the word. We appreciate you. We appreciate your sacrifice for giving, you know, going through all of these things just want to say thank you for even for being consistent eh? with this pray that God will continue to fill your heart with love and more self so you would know him and you would grow in the knowledge of Jesus Christ Amen it's a, it's a pleasure to serve to serve you pleasure to be served. Thank you for the heart of your servanthood. We pray that God will continue to fill your hearts. Amen. I think I don't have a question. So yes, I just want to thank you once again. We love you and we appreciate you and God loves you. He sees your heart and he sees everything that you're doing. So rest in his love, his peace, the light of his word. Yes. And his his heart for you. Thank you so much. Amen. Yes, I'm done. That's all for today. Thank you for listening in.